Compassion Offering like we do each Sunday. If you don't already know, we, we, we sponsor Compassion Kids Overseas, and we take up a Compassion Offering for these kids. How many of you guys have seen the Broadway musical Wicked? Raise your hand. Only the girls will admit it. All right, so Wicked is the backstory to what? Wizard of Oz. Uh, who has seen, who's a big Star Wars fan? All right, so you know episodes four, five, and six, right? That's the story that you might know. But the backstory is what? Episodes one, two, and three, which none of you like because they were horrible, apparently, right? And then I'm not sure if this is true, but Lord of the Rings is The Hobbit, is that the prequel? Is that considered the prequel? That's official. Because I can neither confirm nor deny that that is true, but I've heard it's true. So, so these are backstories. Uh, you may know the story, but there's also the backstory, and it's always cool to see the backstory of things. So today we're looking at the backstory of the book of Philippians. So you're not going to turn to Philippians, you're going to turn to Acts chapter 16, and then we're going to get to Philippians starting next week. So Acts 16, we find the backstory to Philippians. So quick little quiz, who wrote Philippians. Jesus, yes. Jesus is always the right answer. But who wrote, who wrote Philippians? Paul. Um, if you don't know, it's a good chance it's Paul if it's New Testament. Uh, who was it written to? The church at Philippi. Someone's like, the Philippines. No, that's in the South Pacific. No, not the Philippines. Uh, now, this church is in the city of Philippi. And if you go to the map here, Click. Click. There we go. Uh, top of the map, there's Philippi. So if you don't know your geography, you should learn it. But this is um, Greece is in the middle. That's Turkey over to the right and Italy to the left. And Philippi is right there in a place called Macedonia. And this is where Paul um, is writing to. Now, this is going to be a hard question. Does anybody know where Paul was when he wrote the letter to the Philippians? Do you know what city he was in? It's on that map somewhere. Rome. He was in Rome. Give that guy a hand. Yes. He has a quick Google trigger finger. The, oh, it's in his Bible. Okay. So he didn't use Google to cheat on that one. Uh, so Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Now, here's what's really funny about house. So picture Paul. He's house arrest back then. Today, that might be an ankle bracelet. But back then, you're maybe chained to a guard. So for a couple of years, Paul's in Rome. He's, he's not in, in a prison, but he's in a, under house arrest. So imagine you're the, one of the guards. I'm sure there was a rotation of people. But imagine you're one of the guards who's handcuffed to Paul. J- just what that would be like. Just put yourself in that situation. So you're probably not a Christian. You're a Roman guard. And you're handcuffed to Paul, the apostle. I just picture him being super annoying. Like, do you want to follow Jesus now? How about now? How about now? Do you want to follow him now? And just totally like, just, oh, it'd be a tough assignment if you're not wanting to follow Christ. But that's what would happen. So um, he's under house arrest. I want to give you a timeline of what we're looking at as we go through this book of Philippians. So 
In, in uh, 33 AD, Christ is crucified, and also he resurrects. And then the same year, go to my next slide, click. Uh, Paul is converted the same year, they say. And then watch this. So there's a 14-year gap from the time Paul's converted to Jesus and then his first missionary journey. Most of us think of it like this. You know, Paul became a Christian on Thursday, starts doing mission work on Monday. That's not how it went down. He, um, it's like a 14-year gap where he is, remember, the Jews did not really trust Paul because they, he was killing, or I'm sorry, the Christians didn't trust Paul because he had been killing Christians. So it's going to take a good 14 years to kind of gain the trust. I mean, here the guy, the guy who was putting Christians to death and persecuting Christians is now saying he is one. I wouldn't trust it either. i say, well, let's just wait a while. How about we wait 14 years, and then we'll trust you. So Paul goes on his first missionary journey, and then a few years later, his second one. And his second journey is where the church at Philippi was planted, second journey. And then he goes to his third missionary journey, and then he's arrested in Rome in 58 AD. And then he goes on this couple-year journey. He's held as a prisoner in Caesarea, close to Jerusalem there. And go to my next slide. And he is now um, traveling as a prisoner to Rome. So many of you traveled over the summer, and you go halfway around the world in like a few hours. It took them a couple of years to get from Caesarea to Rome. And uh, he's traveling as a prisoner to Rome. Now he's under house arrest in Rome. And then in 62 AD, he receives a gift from, and he writes to the Philippians from Rome. And then in 64 to 67, um, not sure why it says it took them three years to martyr him, but around that time is what they think took place, is when they uh, they put Paul to death in in Rome. So that's a timeline of of this part of the story of, of, of Paul writing to the Philippians. But I want to focus on the backstory. How did this church in Philippi get started? Paul is traveling with uh, three other men, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And Luke, of course, wrote Acts and also the book of Luke. So Paul is traveling with these three other men. So look with me in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is pretty remarkable. They are trying to go, they're trying to take the gospel into certain towns, but then God says no. We're not sure how God said no, but we're not sure if it was like a force field where they literally couldn't, they could not continue or what it was, but God said, no, I don't want you to go over there and share the gospel And in the middle of all that, Paul sees a vision of this man from Macedonia, and the man says, come help us. And so he determines that God wants him to go preach the gospel there in Macedonia. Now take note, they wanted to go share the gospel, a good thing, but God said no. It wasn't the time. 
Sometimes God leads us by closing doors, even to good things. There are times in your life when God will lead you, and he will close the door to a really, really good thing. You remember in the stories of Jesus, Jesus said no a lot. Jesus would leave an area where there was still great need and go spend time in prayer or just to get away from the crowds. There are times when God will close the door even to good things because he wants you to do, to do something else. I've told you before that it scares me to think what my life would look like if God gave me the things that I wanted in my early years. My vision when I was in high school was so small for what my life would be. It was, I had my, my eyes set on, I, I wanted to play college soccer somewhere, but I wasn't good enough, so I never did. And God shut the door there. And I was depressed. That was my, that was my life. And I look back now and I go, okay, I see what he was doing because had he opened up that door, it would have been this whole other trajectory of life for me, whole other state. I wouldn't be here with you right now. I wouldn't be probably doing ministry in the, the sense that I'm doing it right now. God knew what, God closed the door to a good thing, but he opened up a whole other thing that I had no vision for. If God always gives us our plans, we're going to miss his plans. And this is what I think um, happened to these men, because Paul and his team now head off to Philippi, which is where God wanted them to go. And when they arrive there, they meet this group of women there in Philippi. Look at verse 14. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. There's a woman there in Philippi named Lydia, and she is a dealer. Now, not the kind you're thinking of, but she's a dealer of purple cloth. Because back in the day, purple cloth was expensive. It was very luxurious and elegant. I know for you, there's not like a color. Well, maybe if you're like a Texas or an Aggie fan, you see certain colors as royalty. But back then, um, purple, the color purple in clothing was really rare. They had to take a little, I think, a little sea animal and crush its shells, and that's how they get the dye. And so purple was a very expensive color. So she was someone who, who dealt with these luxurious and expensive items. So she had money. She was not a poor person. She probably had lots of wealth. Now, she wasn't a Christian yet, but the text tells us that she was a worshiper of God or that she knew who God was. She worshiped the God of the Jews. She didn't fully understand who Christ was, but she worshiped this God as far as she knew, the God of the Jews. Now, look at the passage again. What does it, what does it say? It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So was it, was it Paul's amazing gospel presentation that saved this woman? No. No. All we can do is preach the gospel, but it is God who opens up hearts. All you and I can do is preach the gospel, but it's God who actually opens someone's heart to believe. You, you need to take the pressure off yourself. 
on how much you know or how much you don't know, how well you speak. It is God who opens up hearts. Just be confident in His grace that it can work through you. In November, we're going to start an equip group on Wednesday nights um, just titled, How Do I Share My Faith? I know it's a question many of us have. How do I share my faith with people? It's a very, very difficult, it can seem like a very difficult thing. Yet, there are some things to know. We're going to discuss those in that group. But just be available and be obedient. And he's going to open up hearts. Most of the work he's going to do is in spite of you, not because of you. So, so know that he's, he is faithful and good, and he's going to open up people's hearts. What happens right after she believes? It says that she goes and she gets baptized. In the New Testament, if you read through the New Testament, people put their faith in Jesus, they repent, they believe, and they get baptized. In many stories, it's almost immediate. It's like, okay, you're a Christian, let's go find a mud puddle. And it's like they just go find something to baptize somebody in. It's, it's quick. It's, it's almost immediate in the New Testament. I think what we struggle with now, and I've said this to you before, is there's this long waiting period for many of you where you become a Christian, but you think to yourself, well, I'm not, I'm not mature enough yet to get baptized, or I'm just scared, and I understand all that. But it's it's not some second level of maturity that you need to get baptized. It's just just go be obedient and get baptized. Because when you when you think things like, I'm just not mature enough to get baptized, that, that sounds like a humble statement, but let's just walk that out for a minute. So let's say five, six years from now, what are you gonna say about yourself? Now I have arrived. Now I'm mature enough to get baptized. If you make it all about this maturity thing, and, and suddenly you, you're, you're looking at yourself and you're testing yourself, and you're going to say in five years, now you've arrived, now you're suddenly worthy of baptism. No, just rest in his grace and mercy. The same grace and mercy you rested in when you became a Christian, rest in the same grace and mercy when you get baptized. Acknowledging that your growth is fueled by his mercy and grace anyway. So all through Scripture, you see people, they just go get baptized because I think this is what God wants us to do. Look at verse uh, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she's shouting this as they go through this area. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. There's a girl and she's demon-possessed. And she is telling people's fortunes. She's predicting the future. And just as a side note, um, you might already know this, but just in case you don't, getting into fortune-telling and palm-reading, horoscopes, tarot cards, all of those kinds of things, um, it it really is demonic. I I think we can call it demonic. And 
you know, some might say, well, well, I know, but I mean, it's, it's just kind of a play thing. It's just, a, it's just one of those things. I say, no, it's, the Bible does call that kind of stuff demonic. It puts it in that category. There's no middle ground with those kinds of things. And some might say, well, well, well I, I heard someone one time, and they actually said some correct things, some right things. So, I mean, there's some truth to it. It's okay, that might be. But I'll also tell you, with the demonic realm, there is power. There is real power involved with that. So this whole category of things that we think of it can be as just a plaything or, or tame is, is in the demonic realm. And this woman is fortune-telling. She's possessed by a demon, and, and this demon might, might actually give her power to do some powerful things. And do you think that if these men, these men are making money off of her, like a pimp and a prostitute, they're making money off this woman as they enslave her to um, these kinds of services? And do you think that if she was always wrong, that she'd have any kind of business? Of course she's going to be right. Of course there's some power in this kind of thing. And so people are coming to her and, and asking for uh, her to predict their future. And she has a demon. And so um, she goes around and just shouting out this phrase for days. And I love what, how, the, how specific the text is. I love how honest the Bible is. Because remember, this is Luke writing Acts. Paul may have rephrased this if, if he was the one that was writing this book. But so Luke says of Paul... It doesn't say, notice the text, it doesn't say, it says, Paul having become greatly annoyed. It doesn't say, out of the goodness of Paul's heart, or out of his care and compassion for her, he cast out this demon. It says, no, he got really, really annoyed at this girl and turns to her in his annoyance. And this went on for several days. I mean, Paul's a patient man. Paul's a patient man. And he, he turns to her and casts out this demon. Now, watch the reaction in verse 19. When her, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These slave owners get upset. They drag Paul and Silas into the city. They get stripped and beaten with rods. They get thrown into prison. The jailer puts them in chains and stocks. And... I'm just going to summarize for you what happens next, the next nine verses or so. Paul and Silas are in these stocks. Now, this, some think these stocks were not just like large wooden handcuffs, but some think they were actually in a position of pain, like maybe their feet and legs and arms were in such a way where it was painful to be in this position. But here's what happens. As they're sitting in these stocks, most likely in pain, they are praying and singing. 
You ever try to sing while you're in pain? That's not an easy thing to do. Mostly when I sing, I sound like I'm in pain, but it's a whole different thing. But try to sing when you're in pain. It's, it's very difficult, but Paul and Silas are singing and praying while they're in this pain. Then there's this earthquake. The prison doors fly open, and the chains fall off, and the jailer wakes up. And in that day, if prisoners escaped, the guard was put to death. It's on your watch, you're going to die for that. This guard's about to kill himself. And Paul stops him. And he says, wait, we're all here. We're all still here. The jailer falls down and shouts, what must I do to be saved? And you can imagine, you know, Paul, I mean, Paul is, is humble. He's a Christ follower. But he very easily could have been like, this jailer is now at his feet begging him to tell him how he can become a Christian. You know, Paul could have played that out and been like, oh, you know, the tables have turned now, haven't they? You know, as he holds his new power over this guy, right? And yet he doesn't. He shares Christ with him. And in the text it says, he believes in Christ, and then they're invited to this man's house, and his entire household gets saved. So notice a pattern here with Lydia and with the jailer, what happens afterwards. They're so joy-filled, they invite these men to their house so they can be together, continue being together, and learning about who this Christ was. All this happens in Philippi. We see three very different people come to know Jesus. I want to show you a little chart that I made here because I think it really helps us understand. I got this from a a book I read recently. And all this happens in Philippi. And we see three very different people come to faith. And God uses very different methods to convert each person. So look at the first person. It's Lydia. And ethnically, she is from an area of Asia. And she's wealthy. She is a God-fearer but not a Christ follower yet. And the method used for her was words. So Paul spoke, and she heard, and she was pricked in her conscience to come to know Christ, and she became a Christ follower. So that's Lydia. Then we have the slave girl, a whole different kind of person. She is Greek ethnically. She is poor economically. She is spiritually in turmoil. She knows who these men are. Think about that. The power of the demonic let her know who these men were. It was no mystery to her. She knew who they were, and she went about shouting what these men were there to do. So she spoke truth, but she didn't possess the truth yet of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father, because she was in turmoil, possessed by this demon. And so the method that's used here is deeds, where, where Paul, much like Jesus, casts out this demon from this, from this girl, this slave girl, and sets her free. Then last we have the, jewel, the jailer. I almost said jeweler. That's not right. The jailer. And ethnically, he's Roman. He is probably more blue-collar. And... Um, spiritually, he's indifferent. 
he may just be caught up in, in Roman paganism and worshiping the Roman gods of mythology. But spiritually, he's probably indifferent. And the method that God uses for this man is this miraculous occurrence and this example where God displays his power and this man comes to know who Jesus is. So I want you to keep this backstory in mind as we go through this whole book of Philippians. And I want you to ask yourself the question, how does God want me to reach people that are in my circle? Because I know we do, we kind of make fun when it comes to teenagers of, yeah, you do your little presentations in front of Impact and, and little kids, that's fine. But you can't just bust that out at a conversation with one of your friends, probably not. It's not going to relate. You've got to understand there's, there's different ways to go about reaching certain people. I've got to have, I'm going to have a, a meeting at the gym tomorrow with a friend of mine who's not a believer yet, and we're going to have, some, we're going to have a conversation. Pray for me at about 5.50 tomorrow if you can. We're going to have a conversation, and I know this guy's a friend of mine. I know his background. I know his job. I know some of his viewpoints, and I'm not going to share Christ with him in the same way that I'm going to share Christ with someone else who's very different. So understand it's the same message, but different methodology or ways of going about it based on who you're sharing Christ with. And I know when we talk about sharing our faith, many of us are scared, intimidated. I feel the same way. Even at my age in my profession, I get the same butterflies you get. I want you to see a, this is a picture of a guy, you probably don't know who he is, but his name is Penn uh, Gillette, and he is um, of, you may have heard of Penn and Teller, he's the one that talks, the other guy doesn't talk ever, and they're both magicians, they have an act, I think, in Las Vegas. But this guy's an atheist, he's a self-admitted atheist, he does a lot of talks about atheism, and... What's interesting is he recently has said that he, even though he's an atheist, he doesn't respect people who don't share their faith. Here's a quote by Penn Gillette. He says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, Then he goes on to say, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? So you have an atheist who says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize. Because if you claim to believe certain things that are the most important thing, in the world, and don't share it, well, then how much do we actually believe it? So this is the only time I'll tell you to listen to an atheist (laughs) and share your faith. I think you'd be surprised. I think people, many people would take it as, wow, a compliment to go, he, he thinks that highly of me to have this conversation. Not everyone, but there are some. There are some. Who is someone that you think is beyond redemption? 
Are there people that you think of as beyond redemption? There are three people in Philippi that many of us would look at on the surface and go, okay, probably not them. This woman, she's successful, wealthy, wealthy. Why would she want Jesus? She has it all going for her. She's not going to be one that follows Christ, and yet she is. This slave girl who's demon-possessed, who knows what she looks like, and yet God saves her. Then there's the guy, the blue-collar jailer guy, who's rough around the edges. He just likes to hang out with the guys, and yet God saves three unlikely people. And this is how the church in Philippi gets planted. So Paul plants his church, and now a few years later, he's writing to these people, the, the church at Philippi. He's in prison in Rome. He's writing to the church at Philippi. We're going to see a, a couple themes here in this book. I'll cover these quickly. We're going to see what gospel-centered friendship looks like. This book is going to show us how to build and sustain true community. We talked about friendship a lot last week. We'll be discussing some of the same kinds of things tonight with our seniors. And we have to understand what gospel-centered friendship looks like. And this will be a great theme in this book. We will see how to suffer with joy. How you and I respond to suffering will reveal who your real God is. How you respond to suffering will reveal who your real God is. If Jesus is our God, we will consider it joy when we suffer like Jesus. If comfort is our God, we will get angry at God when we suffer. Suffering is a great theme of Philippians. You'll see it all throughout. And being content in suffering and joyful even in suffering. If you're someone, your joy in Christ is being stolen away by fear and anxiety, this book is going to be for you. This book is for you. And then last, we're going to see what Christian maturity looks like in this book. There's a lot about what spiritual growth and Christian maturity looks like as we study the book of Philippians. So go ahead and have your discussion there at your tables.